Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from We Screenplay. If you just completed a draft of a script and are wondering what next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals, with incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their careers, from emerging writers still finding their voice all the way to Oscar winners. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned, and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops offered by We Screenplay. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay want to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Arc Studio Pro. Arc Studio is the screenwriting software used to create incredible shows and movies, such as the acclaimed Netflix animation Arcane. It has a ton of features designed to unlock your creativity on the page, whether you're a seasoned industry professional or a first-time writer discovering your voice. Arc is all about minimum distraction and maximum ease of collaboration. There's an outlining whiteboard for mapping out your story, automatic draft management for keeping those scripts safe, and it also offers real-time collaboration similar to Google Docs making it the easiest way to run a professional writer's room or just to write that great idea for a script that you have with a friend. Try it today. Head to arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart, where you can get $30 off a pro account by using the code friends at checkout. Click the link in today's show notes to take your screenwriting to the next level. Hello and welcome to another episode of Script Apart, a podcast that will give you crowns in heaven and laurels on earth, but will also tear your heart out and leave you lonely. Who am I kidding? I can't pull off Judd Hirsch. Um, This is a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. My name's Al Horner and today on the show, he's the Pulitzer Prize winning creator of Angels in America, the long-term writing partner of a certain Steven Spielberg, and just an all-round incredible talent. It's Tony Kushner. He's here with us to talk all things The Fablemans, one of my favourite movies of the last year. The film sees one of the greatest directors of our time. In fact, well, let's be real, one of the greatest directors of all time, pulling the curtain back on his fascinating childhood. It finds Spielberg delving back to a time in which his blossoming love for filmmaking began to coincide and even interact with some seismic changes in his family home. Tony co-wrote the film with Stephen, having worked closely together since 2005. Their previous collaborations include Munich, Lincoln, and West Side Story. This project, however, was very different, with Tony having to act almost as a therapist to his friend during an emotional writing process. For 15 years, he'd been trying to convince Stephen to tell this story. As you'll hear in this episode, it was only after a blazing row between them on the set of West Side Story that Stephen, as an olive branch to Tony, agreed to finally begin work on it. When it came to writing, Tony had to coax intimate details from Stephen in a series of Zoom conversations, pressing his friend to delve deep into his recollection of those years, even the painful parts. In fact, especially the painful parts. Despite this being ostensibly Stephen's story, Tony was still able to bring a large part of himself and his experience to the page. He grew up like the film's protagonist, Sammy, with a mother who came alive while performing. 
He also moved at a young age with his family, like the Fablemans do in the film, experiencing the challenges of relocating to somewhere where you don't know anyone. It's not directly analogous. Sammy in the movie is torn between his father's pragmatism and his mother's advice to follow his dreams. Tony's parents, in the meantime, were both very creative. In the spoiler-filled conversation you're about to hear, we unpack his and Steven's screenplay for the film in its entirety, discussing why the film is more than just a love letter to cinema. We also touch on Tony's past experience of writing from a place of autobiography for his musical Caroline or Change, and discuss the film's intriguing sequence with Sammy's school bully. Oh, and if you think I was going to chat to Tony and not ask him about the brilliant end scene involving David Lynch as John Ford, well, you have another thing coming. That's one of my favourite final scenes of any film in recent memory, so of course we dig into that. Thanks to Tony for being such a great guest, and thanks to you guys for listening. If you like what we do with Script Apart, you can support us by joining us on Patreon. This show is 100% independent. It's just me and my producer Cam, scrambling to make each episode happen around our regular writing and filmmaking day jobs. So any support you can throw away is much appreciated and helps us carve out the time to record more episodes and grow the show. Head to patreon.com forward slash script apart if you'd like to get involved there. Okay, that's my spiel out of the way. Let's get into it. This is the wonderful Tony Kushner discussing the first draft secrets of The Fablemans. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Hey Tony, welcome to Script Apart. Congrats on The Fablemans, man. I absolutely adored this movie. I was hoping we could start by jumping back in time a little bit to the 29th of June, 2005. You're in Malta. It's the first day of filming on Munich, the Spielberg movie, which you actually co-wrote with past Script Apart guest, Eric Roth. Hey, Eric, if you're listening. Hi, Eric. <laughs> um, according to my notes, Stephen was about to blow up a hotel room for the film, presumably, not just for fun. And um, it was at this moment that he tells you a story about a camping trip that he went on as a kid, this really formative moment in, in both his life and, and the lives of his family. You immediately realised that there was a movie in, in what he was telling you. And it sounds like that was the seed for The Fablemans. It was at that point that you began to wage a bit of a campaign with Stephen to get him to make this film. Now, now that The Fablemans has arrived, can you take me back to that moment and, and what it was about the story he told you that felt like something that really lent itself to the screen, a story that really ought to be told? Well, you know, uh, it was like two or three o'clock in the morning. I didn't know it then. I, I've learned it since because we've worked together now for 19 years. But Stephen hates night shoots. They're really hard. <laughs> yeah, they're hard for everybody. Yeah. And it's one of those terrible things where you're sitting around on some uncomfortable canvas chair. We were on a street in Malta. It wasn't cold, but, uh, you know, people are bringing around the gummy worms and horrible, you know, fizzy drinks to drink and stuff. And uh, waiting for the explosives team to say that we were ready to blow up this hotel room uh, window. And uh, and I asked him um, what were his earliest memories of making films. And he told me about some of the films that you actually see him, Sammy Fableman making, like Escape to Nowhere and Gunsmog. Um, and then he told me the story of the camping trip. And, you know, it's not... Uh, I don't think it would be difficult for anybody who really loved his movies as I did uh, to see how 
that story was kind of uh, the incubatory for for everything that was going to come. And and also, I recognize there are certain things, aspects of what he was describing that that uh, appear in many of his earlier uh, films. I think it's sort of a central dialectic in Stephen's filmmaking from the very beginning is the notion of safety and and danger, the ways in which uh, we create illusions of safety, cocoons of safety that are entirely illusory and that are that are constructed through uh, powerful acts of imagination and determination and will and desperation and need, and how the world is constantly crashing in on these nests, these cocoons that we build. And um, and that very often the, you know, uh, where you're being led by the world out of danger, out of safety into danger is not necessarily into mortal danger. It can sometimes be into uh, a kind of an ecstatic state, like at the end of Close Encounters, which is my favorite of all of his movies <laughs> and one of my favorite movies. Yeah. And uh, but it's a it's a it's a it's a a thing that Steve that's so central in Steven's films. And when, when he told me that, you know, the first thing that, you know, here's this man who's created, you know, uh, I mean, sort of defined an era through his camera and, and also created a kind of lovely world for himself. I mean, he's immensely successful and, you know, beloved and, da, 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 da. and, you know, which is why it was so fascinating when, you know, already in close encounters, which is only, you know, right, sort of right after jaws. I mean, uh, but he was already this 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 legendary force, um, and and you see Richard Dreyfus obsessively carving you know the Devil's Tower out of mashed potatoes, and there's there's a sense that he has all the way back then that the uh, that this artistic vision, this 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 inner force is going to push you into some very scary places. And then he told me the story about him taking his camera and filming his you know, wanting to make this the, the best camping trip home movie ever made. And and the more I learned over the years about what happened, the clearer it was, I mean, talking to his sisters and to Stephen, that everybody sort of knew, I mean, it was just right there that this thing had happened, that Lee had fallen in love with uh, Bernie was his name, and that Arnold knew but didn't know you know, and and so when Stephen told me that story, I thought, okay, this is unbelievable. Yeah. It happens a lot. You you when you meet artists that you really admire, a really great artists, and they tell you their stories, you realize that that the thing that you admire about the artist, I mean, this is even in Proust. I mean, it comes from some play. It's not a big surprise, really. It's they're born of the world that they then. Uh, turn into a world that they've created, and so their lives kind of follow the laws of the of their imagined universe. And you know, like Herman Melville's life being this kind of agonizing disaster after disaster. Even though it's like probably the greatest writer uh, America ever produced. Um, and and I was just so moved by that. So I said right there and then, sort of as a joke, because I'd known Stephen at that point for like two months. I said, you know, someday Stephen, you have to make a movie of this. And then I couldn't let go of it. And I just kept saying it to him and saying it to him and saying it to him. And eventually it went from being kind of like a, a joke that we shared. I think right around somewhere in the interim between uh, Lincoln and West Side Story, we started talking about it a little bit more seriously. And then around West Side Story, his mother had just died. And his father, Arnold, who was 102 at the time, was starting to go into a serious decline and was clearly not going to live much longer. 
And I think that's what made Stephen start to say, let's let's take this a little more seriously. Um, although with every movie I've made with Stephen, there's always a moment right before he pushes the button and says, yes, we're actually going to do this, start spending the money, you know, build, find the sets, et cetera, cast the actors, where he sits by himself and decides that this is crazy and he shouldn't do it and he's not going <laughs> to do it. And, uh, you know, it happened with Munich. It happened with Lincoln. It happened uh, for a prolonged period for West Side Story. And then uh, and then with the Fablemans, he called me like a month before we were going to start shooting and said, I, you know, I could still cancel. I could find a way out of this. <laughs> but I did that. And my husband and I uh, were on Zoom with him and said, no, let, let's go ahead and do it. Let's do it. It's but that's what I love about him is he likes he only makes movies that scare him, that make him feel like he doesn't know what he's doing. Um, and I think that's sort of the job of the artist. It's what I admire. That um, produces amazing films. Something you said there, you mentioned that this was on Zoom when, you know, he finally decided to sort of push the button to use your your metaphor. One reading of the film and its timing is that that's kind of tempting to make is that The Fablemans was perhaps in some way ushered into existence by the pandemic. There was this moment early into COVID where I think, you know, it's that it did seem like the fabric of society was going to collapse. And, uh, you know, all of us were asking if we were ever going to be able to get back to doing what we love. And and this film, it struck me, has has the urgency and the honesty of a film by someone who who might have been asking themselves, if I never got to tell another story again, if I not never got to make another movie again, what's the story I'd regret not having been able to to tell? W was that a factor at all? Do you think was that something you spoke about? Stephen, uh, we didn't talk about it at the time. Uh, he's now actually saying very close to exactly what you're saying, and I and I suppose that that's true. I mean, I know that. You know, when we, you know, for the first part of the pandemic, he was still doing post-production on, uh, my timetable is so screwed up by the whole thing. I guess we had, um, and we'd really finished all the post-production work on West Side Story, but we had to postpone it for a year, the release of it for a year, thinking, you know, well, we'll, we'll wait this out. Then, of course, we released it the day Omicron first appeared, <laughs> and it wiped us out again. But uh, we were done with that. And we were talking, and I I know that I said a couple of times, Tim, you know, the, the, I said, this is, of course, an absolutely horrific thing that we're all going through. But I have to say that as a writer, especially since everything that was going to be filmed or made or anything that I owed anybody a script for had been postponed, and everybody had dropped off the face of the earth, and you didn't have to go anywhere, you didn't have to see anything, you didn't have to, you couldn't leave your apartment. For a lot of writers, it was like, you know, pig heaven. It was like, oh, my God, I, I can just stay here in my house. And he was sort of, I think, maybe a little envious of that, that I could do what I do. But, of course, he couldn't imagine doing uh, um, uh, what he did. And I think that there was a part of that that maybe led him uh, to do this. He now says, uh, I think very seriously, that he he felt an anxiety he knew it wasn't rational he knew that we would get past the pandemic in one way or another but he did have an anxiety at first of like okay i've made 38 movies or whatever is there a story that i haven't told that um i would really hate 
from at my last moments before, you know, whatever it is gets me, gets me that I, you know, damn, I wish I had done that. And, <laughs> and, uh, and he decided that it was time to do this. So I think it was that and the combination of, of grieving for his mother and sort of preparing for the loss of his father. Um, and I told him over and over again, I said, you know, this is, uh, things kept reminding me of Long Day's Journey into Night, which, you know, uh, I mean, the two, if you're in theater, the two great exemplars of biographical, autobiographical drama are A Glass Menagerie, which Tennessee wrote at the very beginning of his career and then I think suffered from having written it <laughs> ever ever after. Um, yeah. And O'Neill, who wrote Long Day's Journey into Night in 1939 and immediately sealed it up in, in the vault in Bennett Cerf's office in Random House and said, no one can read this until 25 years after I die. And it's never to be performed by anyone on stage. And uh, it's only to be read. And then, of course, the minute he died in 1953, his wife, Carlotta, broke his will and sent it to the Royal Dramat in uh, Stockholm and had it done and then said to the judge, oh, my God, I don't know how they got it, but it's already on stage in Sweden. So let's do it here in the United States. And then it became you know, uh, it went out into the world as the the greatest American play, but the the which O'Neill must have known when he wrote it. Um, but the sense of betraying his family um, by writing it was so huge. He actually apparently the first record that we have that he mentioned it to anyone uh, um, was to his friend Sax Cummings the night that his brother Jamie arrived in Grand Central Station with his mother's body on the train. It's the <laughs> terrifying monologue in Moon for the Misbegotten. Yeah, yeah. And, and O'Neill was supposed to meet him at Grand Central and was too afraid to meet him and sent Sax Cummings to, to go pick him up. And they found him passed out drunk amidst hundreds of bottles of alcohol with his mother in the boxcar in her coffin. And Cummings was furious at O'Neill and said, you know, how could you do this to your brother? And O'Neill said, let's go for a walk. And they walked in Central Park. And O'Neill said, I have an idea for a play about my family. And that's the first time the play was ever mentioned. It's Anyway, I told Stephen a lot about uh, just to intimidate him. But the the feeling that you're committing a crime, that you're you're breaking the the sort of oath of secrecy that surrounds, you know, all family economies is, I think, a very powerful thing. And for a good Jewish boy like Stephen, it's like even even worse. And um, I don't think he would have made the movie if if his parents were still with us. So, I'll, and I, one other thing I think is. All his career, Stephen wanted to make a movie musical, and and just was he loves movie musicals, uh, the really good ones, and and I think making West Side Story was an enormous turning point for him. He, it was, I mean, unbelievably difficult. He and I fought like we've never fought before. It was, well, I think, one of the reasons the Fable ones got restarted is that we had a terrible t in the rehearsal period for West Side Story. When they when they were doing the dancing and the singing stuff, uh, he and I had a huge fight. I scream and yell. Stephen just sits there, uh, and uh, and we. Uh, but he knew how angry I was, and I, he called me up and said, "Come to my apartment uh, after rehearsals tomorrow, and and I want to start talking about the my memory thing again." And I think it, it, partly he did that just to say, uh, "I still love you. We're still friends. You know, <laughs> this isn't this isn't going to be." The end of our friendship, um, uh, and 
But I think having gone through, you know, uh, the rigors of doing a move, move, a giant movie musical and having done it, I think so brilliantly. I mean, I, it's unbelievable that he'd never done. I mean, musicals are really hard on stage or on film. And it looks like it's somebody who had been doing them all his life. Uh, and I think that was a big, and he loved it. He, he, he couldn't bear when we finished filming it. He, the last night of filming of West Side Story, he had Ansel Elgort looking at his reflection in a puddle and he made us do like 400 takes of that one shot because he didn't <laughs> want to let it go. Um, uh, and I think that was, I think he felt like, okay, and he's 70, he was, you know, just turning 74. I think, I think he was feeling like, okay, this is a big moment. And so it was time to make a, to, to take a look back, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's interesting what you say about the, the terror of betraying your family. Perhaps that's why so often with projects like this, there's this slight insertion of, fiction or the idea of fiction like you know when when you did caroline or change you know that that wasn't yeah. you know it was i think the kid was called noah rather than tony but noah gelman yeah yeah and, so uh, uh, and, you know in the, the long day's journey tonight is edmund tyrone i mean yeah edmund is borrowed from king lear i mean it's but it's you know it's it's a uh, yeah you put in a buffer it also gives you permission to invent and rearrange and compress because the rhythms of a play or of a, mu a movie are not the rhythms of a of a life yeah. i mean the rhythms of a biography or an autobiography are not the rhythms of a life it's always uh, editing you know and selecting but the first thing that we did after we did all these interviews uh, I asked Stephen if I could just take everything. Um, and I had a lot of notes and I said, can I just take it and try and without you pull it together into some kind of single narrative. Um, uh, and, and it was around that time that uh, I came up with the name Fablemans because Spielberg is, you know, play mountain basically in German. Yeah. So Fabel is the German for fable. I thought it was close enough and I liked the name and he liked the name. Uh, and then I told him to name himself and his family. And he picked the names, Sammy and Mitzi and Bird and Reggie and Natalie and Lisa and Benny for Bernie, who it's interesting that Bernie was the one who came closest to being his character is him. Uh, Freud would have a field day with that. Um <laughs> It wasn't until halfway through making the working on the script that Stephen told me that Arnold, when he finally remarried, married a woman named Bernice. His <laughs> wife had married his best friend, whose name was Bernie. It's like this is you can't make this stuff up. It, <laughs> yeah. And he also told me that the monkey was actually named. It was actually a monkey, and its name was Bernie. I mean that she left. They left this guy behind in Arizona because Arnold, I think, had finally figured out what was or was admitting consciously yeah. that, that his marriage was in terrible danger. And his wife goes into a huge depression and comes out of it by starting therapy, but also by buying herself a pet monkey and calling it Bernie. I mean, it's just it was absolutely uh, un unbelievable. So I, I asked Stephen if I could... Um, write this thing, uh, it wound up being an 81-page prose novella. And I think that that was, I had a sense, and he agreed to it, I think, because we both realized we needed to take it, everything one step away from things as he was really working to remember them and uh, create a fiction that would give us 
uh, plasticity and, you know, permission to invent and also a kind of search for a thematic spine for the piece. Because our great fear all along was that this was going to be of interest really only to Stephen and his sisters and people like me who were kind of obsessed with him and his filmography, but that it would not speak to a lot of people. And one of the things that I really admire and love about Stephen is that that there's a profoundly small d democratic principle operative. He 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 really believes in the necessity of of popular entertainment uh, and and has a uh, you know proven, I think, over and over again, that you don't have to make something dumb and stupid and reactionary and venal to make it popular, that you, that, that you know, um, when I went on my first date with my husband many years ago, and we saw Saving Private Ryan, and afterwards, Mark said this really smart thing to me, Mark's a film historian, and he said, you know, you could stop that sequence of the, of the D-Day invasion as immensely complicated as it is, at any moment and ask like the dumbest person in the audience, what's going on here? And they could explain to you what the essential story dynamics are because he doesn't, you know, it's never chaos. It's always, I mean, when we were filming Lincoln and and he was trying to keep track of who the Democrats were in the house, in the house of representatives, (laughs) everybody's screaming and he kept calling me on the set and saying, okay, who is that guy? And and what is his, is he left Democrat, right Democrat? and and at one point I said he had a terrible cold that week and he was really not feeling well. And I said, Stephen, just don't worry. I mean, at this point, it's all breaking down into chaos. And so just <laughs> just enjoy filming the chaos. He said, anybody can film chaos. I want to film chaos that means something. And uh, that's like, I just love that, I think. So, um, you know, we 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 found a way to create a, a storyline that um, that was true to his memories, but that that would work as a story that that people would we we hoped if everything worked people would enjoy it it seems like that's the case i mean <laughs> it's very meaningful to him and to me that a lot of people who are responding to it aren't people who love what it has to say about art or film i mean it's very nice when people who get that aspect of it get it but people who who went through divorce who are the children of divorces or who went through divorces or you know who have some not terrible family story, but uh, you know, a, a kind of family. All families traumatize each other, and 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 uh, people are responding to it as this gentle but honest uh, and tough family story, and that means everything to him and to me. I think. Hey, this is Al. Just jumping in to tell you about two of our great sponsors this week. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, ScreenCraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. ScreenCraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. These guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine, featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of ScreenCraft. Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out ScreenCraft today. Visit ScreenCraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. 
Support for this episode also comes from Arc Studio Pro. Screenwriting to me is all about immersion. I want to stay immersed in that dreamy, fantasy-like state while I weave my story and craft my characters. I don't want to be distracted by anything and I certainly don't want to be thinking about text formatting. Arc Studio Pro understands that. It's so intuitive, it has a minimal and dare I say beautiful interface that allows me to stay completely focused on the story I'm trying to tell. To take your screenwriting to the next level, visit arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart where you can either download a free version or get $30 off a pro account to unlock its full host of amazing features. Use the code FRIENDS at checkout to get that discount. That's arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. And you've described it as the, the fastest screenplay that you've ever written. Did you mean that in terms of a first draft tumbling out of you or, or was this kind of landing on your final draft? And um, yeah, was this a project that went through many rewrites or, or did the deeply personal nature of the story, the fact that, you know, you weren't having to conjure up plot points out of thin air for Sammy to experience. Uh, did that mean that you got it pretty much on the first time of asking? No, I mean, I think that the reason that it, I mean, I could, after I wrote the 81 page thing, which obviously could have made, you know, a 19 year long television series. Uh, <laughs> and we boiled it down pretty quickly uh, into an outline in the month of September, 2020. Uh, and then, and we decided that we would try writing it together. We had no idea if that would actually, I had never done that before. And I thought the idea of having it, writing is so private for me. And I thought the idea of doing it in front of somebody was really embarrassing. Um but we decided to try it. And, uh, you know, one of the great things about the Fablemans is nobody even knew we were doing it. We didn't make a deal about it. We didn't tell anybody other than Christy, Christy McCosco-Krieger, the producer, that we were doing it. And it was complete. And my husband knew and Kate, Stephen's wife knew. But otherwise, it was we had total permission to fail terribly and just hide it away and never show anybody. We finished uh, around the end of September. We had a pretty good outline and we were starting to get excited about it. And then I thought there would be months of sort of sitting around and noodling and thinking and maybe writing a scene and, you know, the, my usual sort of endless preparation for getting ready to get ready to get ready to get ready to write. And Stephen, who has the most terrifying work ethic on earth, uh, said, um, so uh, it was like the end of September. He said, so uh, October 2nd, uh, are you free? Uh, I have four hours uh, that day. And I thought, oh God. And I said, sure, I'm free. And he said, let's get on Zoom. And I explained to him how final draft software, you can collaborate. I could type because I'm a better typist than he is. I could type and and he could see what I was typing and we would do what we're doing right now. We could see each other on Zoom. And we sat down that first day, October 2nd, and we worked for four hours. It went by like nothing. And we had a blast doing it. So we set up another date and then another date that week. And that became our pattern, three days a week, four hours a day, usually Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday or Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. And we thought, okay, so we'll just keep going. And then by the end of October, we had half the script done. And we kept going and December 2nd, we finished as two months. I, I've never written anything, anything in two months. And, and I mean, in two years. So, <laughs> and then we did 10 drafts um, uh, by April, May. I mean, you know, we just kept going at it and, and uh, I loved it. I mean, I, I want to, 
I want to keep writing with people because I'd never done it before, but it turns out George S. Kaufman knew what he was doing. I mean, it's a, you know, Beaumont and Fletcher knew how, what they were up to. It's, it's a, and, you know, we'd been working together for 19 years. And even though we'd never written anything together, I, you know, we knew each other's tastes and we know how to argue. We argued very little in the Fablemans though. I, um, I partially made a decision uh, for myself that, I mean, usually part, uh, one of our sort of unspoken agreements, I think, in our work together is he's going to let me yell and scream and beg and plead and whine and make a pest of myself until I feel it's okay for me to give up or until I, and I have to give up. My deal is I have to give up if I'm sure that he understands what I'm saying and doesn't want to do it. And he has to listen until he's somehow managed to convince me that he's heard what I'm saying. You know, it's like a marriage. And uh, I don't know that it's a good advice for marriage, but it's worked worked for us. But the thing was, I sort of decided, you know, on some level, this has to feel like familiar to him. So there has to be a point where he says, I just can't have, there's only one line in the film. Um, It's his line. He wrote it. It's my favorite line in the film. And he, uh, he wrote, he said it out loud. I I wrote it down immediately and said, I love that. We read the scene again. He hated it in the line and said, that's awful. What does that mean? And I said, I don't know what it means, but it's the best line in the script. We're not changing it. And uh, he said, but my father would never say, it's one of uh, Bert's last lines in the movie. He said, my father would never say anything like that. It doesn't sound, it's poetry. What is it? What is it? I said, I don't know, Stephen, but I'm not, I, I will not let you touch that line. I'll die before you touch that line. And it's the only thing in the movie that I insisted on. And it wasn't until the day we filmed the scene that I finally realized, and I heard Paul Dano do it. What was the line? The line is uh, at the very last minute. I mean, when Sammy is falling apart, and probably it's just, you know, a young person's panic attack about, you know, how am I going to get into an adult life? Um, but partly it's because of the divorce and and uh, he's finally worked up the nerve to say to his father, I, I don't want to do what you do. I don't want to go to school. I want to go make movies. And his father shockingly says yes, which, of course, when you're a kid, feels like your father is saying, go ahead, you know, fuck off. I don't care what you do anymore. <laughs> I don't love you. And Bert, uh, you know, says we're going to, you know, we're we're never going to not know each other. And Sammy says very legitimately, you you can't say that now because you and mom, you know, have drifted apart. And and he's and and we sat there and I said, okay, so what does Bert say here? I mean, because he's got to give Sammy the scene has to end right now, and the Bert has to give him something that he can really use. And Stephen said he he would say something like, I don't know, like uh, um, we've come too far in our story to actually say the end. And yeah. I said, oh, my God, and I, I actually teared up and I wrote it down. And then Stephen had turned on the line, just hated it. And I mean, I'm not kidding. All the way to like right before we were shooting that scene, which we didn't realize was scheduled on Arnold's yard site. It was the, the one year anniversary of Arnold's death it was wow. the day we shot that scene. So that was intense. Yeah. And then Paul said it. And I finally thought, oh, my, I went up to Stephen. And I said, I know why that line is so important. It's uh, this man has to give his son something. And he knows that his empiricism, his his scientific method, his his faith in utility and, you know, practicality is not going to help now because his son has asked him an impossible question. 
your marriage ended, what is permanent? So he reaches inside of himself and he produces this clumsy line that's his attempt, a person who was really not a poet, his attempt at at speaking like an artist, at, at what he thinks Mitzi would say. And, and he puts it in the form of a story that that's just, you know, and I love that. I just think that's so it's, it's in its brokenness. It's, and, you know, it, sometimes it takes a great actor and Paul Dano is as great as it gets, uh, you know, to say it. And then you go, Oh, that, that's what I meant. Uh, or in this case, that's what Stephen meant. And uh, other than that, I really, I, I gave him a wider uh, birth and I didn't, uh, we didn't have combat um, quite as much as on other films because, you know, I, I needed to let him own it in a way that, uh, you know, so. And in terms of some of the other kind of pivotal moments in the film and in the script, uh, the film begins with Sammy experiencing his first ever trip to the cinema. And of course, it's, you know, he sees that great train crash sequence and it terrifies him. His fear leads him to filmmaking by understanding how it was shot and shooting a version of it himself, he's able to kind of exercise some control over the terror of it all. And I guess like on a narrative level, it's an obvious place to start. Like the seeds of one of the greatest directors of all time's own relationship with cinema and the practice of filmmaking. But thematically, it struck me reading the script as it's it's the start of a thread that's woven all the way through the movie, like the entire way through the Fableman's Sammy picks up and puts down the camera as a means of control, like a means of contextualizing and recontextualizing the world around them. And yeah, Tony, that's such a, a beautiful articulation of one of the great truths about like any act of creation, I suppose. Like when the world you inhabit is scary or difficult to comprehend, being able to kind of create your own world on the page or in Sammy's case on film, that's such a, an amazing tonic. Was that the, the kind of thematic intention of, of that scene as the starting point? Yeah, I mean, I asked Stephen at one point during our big interview period, what was the first movie you ever saw? And he said it was The um, Greatest Show on Earth, which is just an awful movie. Um, <laughs> I mean, Cecil B. DeMille was such a, a club-thumbed hack. I can't, I really, ugh, and and right-wing idiot. But but some of the technical stuff is extraordinary, and the train crash is terrifying. And I said to Stephen, you must have been scared to death. And he said, oh, I had terrible nightmares. And then and then I said, what was the first film you ever made? And he said, oh, it was the train crash. I made the train crash. And uh, and he told me the story about the little electric trains. And one of my uh, closest friends was the children's author and illustrator, Maurice Sendak. And uh, I, I uh, like my niece, Kira, when she was uh, a little girl, I bought her Outside Over There, which is one of Maurice's masterpieces. And uh, And I read it to her. And she immediately had terrible nightmares because it's a scary story. And her parents were actually, my brother and my sister-in-law were sort of annoyed with me and said, we're putting that book away and hopefully she'll forget about it. So that we hid the book. And the next night she came to me and said, read me that story again. And I said, oh, your mother really, and she said, no, I, and she insisted. So I read it to her again. And then she said, read it again. And every night for several days, she wanted that story. And I finally realized that that's, of course, exactly what great children's literature does. It it shows you, you know, the world that you already apprehend uh, uh, to be not a safe place, that your parents are protecting you, you hope. But that means the knowledge that you're being protected means that you're aware that there's danger to be protected from. And 
And one of the things that great children's literature does or great films, you know, children's films, Bambi or, you know, whatever, uh, is, is to show you this thing, scare the shit out of you, but it's in, it's in a fictional form. So then you can watch it over and over until you've mastered it, until you've gained, you know, I mean, Maurice's book, Where the Wild Things Are, until, you know, every kid reads it over and until they're Max, until they're the king of the wild things. Yeah. And then, and it gives you this kind of uh, sense of completely unwarranted competency because you're still a little kid and you can't do anything, Just but you feel, you know, big and strong and tough. You've handled something scary. And, uh, and I was so moved that that's clearly what happened with Stephen. And then that begins this, what I mentioned earlier, this dialectic of, of safety and danger. And yeah, I mean, as you say, uh, you know, he, when, when the camera leads him into sort of being the adolescent master of his universe and then leads him right off a cliff to a point where he feels like he's destroyed his mother and his parents' marriage by discover by the camera, seeing something that's in plain sight, but nobody wants to look at, but the camera says, look, he puts it away and and uh and then he picks it up again when he's being bullied thinking okay it made me safe once before maybe i can weaponize it and use it train it on this bully and it's a true story that steven told me about this guy who then falls apart after steven's turned him into this kind of godlike creature um that was the scene you know we the scene in the hallway i was um we filmed it it kind of went wonderfully because the two actors are so terrific, uh, Sam Retchler and Gable Bell. But even while we were filming it, I thought, this is wrong. The, the way we are doing this, it, it ended with them kind of like sitting together and, and kind of becoming pals or something. And, 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 uh, with, and, and sort of with, with Logan, the bully, kind of explaining why he fell apart or something. And it, it didn't feel right. It didn't feel real. I didn't, I, I, it made me cringe. And I, I started, that's one of the few times that I really began to kick up a fuss. I said, we have to refilm this. I have to figure out a new ending for the scene. It's wrong. And the, how did it initially end then, Tony? Well, it ended with them both sitting together and it's kind of a buddy, buddy thing. And it's kind of warm and they're, you know, they're, they're, they've kind of become pals. Yeah. And it really felt, it was nice enough, but it, it, it didn't see, I didn't get what we were trying to say with this, like, you know, find a fascist and make him look like, you know, Superman and you can become the fascist's best friend or something. It was like, <laughs> yeah, but also it felt like what really worried me was how it ends the movie. I mean, it's like the ending and then we still have the big Mitzi scene and the big Bert scene. And then of course the John Ford scene to get through it. It's like, this is not the ending of the movie. And, and, but it felt like, you could see the credits start to roll. So I thought uh, we fucked this up somehow. And I began to really brood about it. And I went back to the moment in my notes when Stephen first told me the story. And um, he said, you know, I, I filmed this kid and I had a track meet and he was, this was just one bully. We made up the second one, but the, he said, you know, and I filmed him doing this track meet and, and looking, you know, golden and everything. And then he came back into the locker room after he, everybody saw the film and, and burst into tears and he told me that story and I thought, okay, this is amazing. It has to go into the movie. And then I said, why did he do that? And Stephen said, I have no idea. And I've, I've never seen him again. I think he actually died in Vietnam, that kid. 
Um, but Stephen said, I, I don't know. I didn't know then. I was like, well, this is fucking weird. And I, and I don't know. And we both sat there staring at this thing that had happened, not understanding it. And I, I, I realized in my panic to figure out a better way to, and that that was the point is that it's not that it leads uh, Sammy into a place of understanding, which is of course, another kind of safety. It leads him into another place of deep confusion and adult mystery that people are not ever what they seem that somebody who feel looks like, you know, he makes him look like Apollo because he sort of is the school Apollo. And then he comes in and, and starts blubbering and weeping and falling apart and, and clearly is having cognitive dissonance on a level that's impossible to assimilate. And I said, I said, Stephen, I got the ending now. It's we have to leave this kid completely conf- like, what the fuck was that? What was what? Where am I? What was that? Which is why then the John Ford scene, I think, works, because what Ford is really saying to Sammy is this thing is going to lead you into terrifying places. And you are when you create something, when you are working as an artist and working with your own imaginations and also the imagination of the audience, you're enlisting forces that are much vaster and more powerful than you can possibly pretend to control. Yeah. And the only thing you can really do is figure out the dumb, stupid technical things of your trade. <laughs> Where is the horizon line? Yeah. You know, that you can figure out. Remember not to put it in the middle. Uh, you know, we we knew that the John Ford scene was going to be the ending of the movie from the very first time we talked about making a movie uh, of this, but we didn't know why. And then, and uh, so we refilmed the, we had to actually build the hallway that the last part of the gym of the Logan Sammy story takes place. And we had to, we couldn't get back to the school that we had filmed it in originally. So we had to rebuild it exactly like it and then refilm that, the, the ending. And also Rick Carter, the art director, I, I was saying, I think I've got this. I think I, I told him, I think it's about confusion and not knowing. And Rick says, God, it sounds like you're, Rick is an old hippie. He said, it sounds like you're talking about smoking uh, weed. <laughs> I don't do because I just fall fast asleep. And I'm pretty sure Stephen has never done it. And uh, I thought, yeah, that's, and so that's where the marijuana thing came in. It was, it was such a perfect 60s moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, that scene actually really speaks to why I'm kind of mystified sometimes when I see this movie framed as some kind of like love letter to cinema or reduced to that. Yes, filmmaking is a gift to Sammy in The Fablemans, but um, it's also kind of a curse and and a power that wields destruction and pain and confusion. It pulls Sammy's family apart. It causes existential spirals like in that corridor scene. Sammy himself doesn't know why he framed his bully as a hero on screen. And that confusion kind of eats away at him. This isn't an original thought. I think I think it was maybe David Sims at The Atlantic who uh, who said this. But um, yeah, there's something really interesting about the way that both The Fablemans and Ready Player One uh, find Stephen being arguably self-reflective on on the havoc that his filmmaking can can unleash. Like in that movie, it's like he's almost lamenting the obsession and the ferocity with which some people have attached themselves to his his quote unquote IPs. Um, anyways, we digress. Uh, if I don't ask about the ending of this movie, I'm going to really regret it. 
because it's pure serotonin in cinematic form, Tony. Um, I skipped out of the cinema following that final shot. It's absolute joy. You mentioned that you always knew that this was going to be the climax of the film. Can you tell me what leapt out at you and Stephen about that moment from Stephen's life as as like the perfect place to leave Sammy and the perfect place to kind of exit this story? Well, actually, I mean, the truth is, apart from the fact that it was this incredibly great anecdote, which he told me many years ago, and I thought, oh, this is such a great story, and I've dined out on it for years. And then I began to realize that he's told a lot of people this story. Um, a couple of his friends said when they learned that we were doing this, uh, said to me, is it going to end with the John Ford story? <laughs> you know, there's something sort of perfect about Stephen as a very young man who hasn't done anything at all. He's actually younger than Sammy is. Uh, he was, I think, 16 when he met Ford, uh, when that happened. And the scene is is exactly what happened. It's, it's, it's Stephen's memory of it line by line. I didn't know why I wanted it to be at the end of the movie. And Stephen also came up with the same idea at the same time. And neither of us could really say why. And, and it wasn't until we had made the movie, uh, as I said, that I suddenly realized, oh, this is actually, it's not just, you know, the, the, the immediate sort of gratification is here's this incredibly great, hugely popular, hugely significant filmmaker meeting probably, you know, certainly inarguably, I mean, somebody else in the pantheon and, and, and people would say like maybe the, the top of the pan, I mean, John Ford, you know, what I love and Stephen made this up on the spot uh, in the script. It, originally it just sort of said that Sammy sits in the waiting room with the secretary and waits. And he, he, I think he notices the shooting a man shot Liberty Valance and begins to get an idea about who he's about to meet. And Stephen had the art, uh, crew, put all those posters around and then he on the set while we were filming it, he had the searchers theme playing. You know, everybody was I mean, like, I saw like grown up crew members weeping. <laughs> look at this one absolute masterpiece. I mean, it's like unbelievable what John Ford created and like one movie after another, you go, okay, that's one of the greatest films. Oh yeah. That one too. And that one too. And that one. And then it ends with the man who shot Liberty Valance, which is like a film of cosmic impossible greatness and and uh you know I, that's so satisfying in a way that he that, that it feels like a torch handing moment or whatever but but it turned out to be much more than that it's the it's the it's like i said it's it's this man who you know when i when we were working on lincoln it was the first time that i noticed this because i didn't when we did munich i had never been on a film set before i didn't really know what the hell i was looking at by the time we did Lincoln, I knew more. And I over and over again, Stephen would show up on set. He it's like he had never seen this the the set that he was going to shoot that day. He showed us up really early. And I would see him walking around. He he puts a, a thumb in his mouth and he he does this thing with his fingers with this with a camera and he's working out the whole thing. I mean, his head is an editing room. It's you know, Hitchcock, they found this letter that Hitchcock said that he saw dual. And he said, I, I, this person uh, is the first filmmaker who is of a generation that whose frame of reference is film, not a proscenium arch. Hitchcock <laughs> is pretty amazing. And, but I began, I, a couple of times, things that were really important to me in my script for Lincoln couldn't happen because there was like a door would open and there was no, you couldn't go, uh, you couldn't go through the door or something. And I was get like, I said, how can we be doing this? We're making this movie, and, and how you know, in theater, you sort of sometimes expect people don't 
plan things, but in film, all this money and everything. And then I realized, and, I, and I'm right about this, that making film, uh, movies, editing, composing a shot, um, coming up with new ways to do it is so second nature to Stephen that I think he would be bored to death uh, if that was if it was all prepared ahead of time, I think it would be, you know, he needs to not know. He needs to be thrown into a state of chaos and panic because the door won't open and you have to come up with something new. Um, uh, he needs challenges like, like that all the time. And, you know, that's so a that it's it's the it's it's the the question of a technical mastery versus, you know, the sort of overwhelming uh dangers and pleasures and and possibilities of life and getting all of that to fit into the lens of a camera and get recorded on film and chopping it up and pasting it together that became so uh central the story that we were trying to tell and it just turned out and then we went on to the paramount lot they were filming babylon right behind us there were all these elephants and showgirls i don't know if they're elephants but like all these people were going into the big party sequence right behind us and we hear the, the music playing. It was very sort of 1920s Hollywood. Um, and we were just there to show uh, Gabe LaBelle as Sammy walking up the street at the very end of the movie. And Steven said, what are we, actually he did it in the script. It wasn't on the set. He, he said, you know, what are we just did that horizon adjustment? And I thought, oh, that'd be fun. And then a couple of people who were very impressive filmmakers themselves read the script and loved it and then said, you know, but that ending, uh, don't end with a cheap joke. It's not worth, you know, end with the scene, but not that that little gag at the end. That's no good. And we talked about getting rid of it. I really shudder at night lying awake thinking, what if we had decided to listen and throw it away? <laughs> because I thought it was going to be a gag that maybe a few uh cinephiles would love but most people wouldn't get that it wouldn't even notice that it happened and when i saw it in toronto for the first time with a big audience and everyone cheered yeah, when it happened yeah. and then people kept coming up uh to steven and to me and to christy and saying i love that moment and i realized and this is why Stephen, I mean, this is, I, I don't use the word genius very often but Stephen is a genius and this is one of the ways that he is he it actually is one of those things that you think is going to be minor and not terribly significant. And it's, it turns out to be like the whole movie. It's, <laughs> this is the first time he's made a movie that's sort of about himself. Although it is, as we were saying, with a, a thin veil of fiction drawn across it, what he's never done when we were making Munich, uh, I tried to, I begged him to in some scene on a bridge in Paris where they're buying vegetables. I said, you know, let's put you in a hat and you can do a little Hitchcock. It's a thriller. You could do a Hitchcock you know, cameo. And he did. And then he cut it out immediately. Even stays behind the camera. It's, it's very much not, he's not interested in revealing the, the artificiality of it. And he's not, he doesn't reveal himself. He, except, you know, through the veil of, 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 of fiction. And that moment is, is the first time in his entire filmography where this guy that everyone has grown up with and everybody, you know, and he's kind of an era defining artist steps out behind the camera. He does that little jiggle and he said, yes, I'm here watching this movie with you. And I, I really do think that it's turned out to be this incredibly important and like the perfect ending i'm just sort of in awe that he came up with it's 
you know, it's one of those things that uh, it, it seems trivial and it actually, I think, makes the movie land in a way that, that, that it was hard to get the jiggle to actually uh, Janusz Kaminski and every, all the cameramen were saying, you know, but let's do it, but let's let's do it so that it's an adjustment like a cameraman would do an adjustment. So it's this very smooth thing. And when we were in the editing room, I think I said, you know, it needs to look like a uh, like somebody just suddenly said, oops, and pushed the camera. <laughs> and and we actually had to, to get some lab to make it look like that. But it it, it it's uh it's a wonderful uh, I think ending for the film. I'd love to ask you before I let you go, Tony, about the future. Uh you're you're 40 years into this incredible career spanning so much great work. Only one or two of those projects, though, have had the same kind of roots in autobiography or, or semi-autobiography that The Fablemans has. Was there anything about the process of making The Fablemans and, and watching Stephen excavate from his own life and helping him in that process uh, that, that made you kind of think about returning to your own life as a well of inspiration the way that you did with uh, Caroline or Change? As it stands, you're in the midst of this great ongoing collaboration with Stephen that, you know, clearly you guys are in a great groove with. Is is that your priority moving ahead because it brings you so much joy and room for expression? Or, uh, you know, do you see a return to the stage at some point to do something a bit more kind of rooted in, in your own uh, person, in your own history? Talk me through where your head is at in terms of the next chapter, having completed work on this incredible movie. You know, after West Side Story, which was just incredibly hard to do, and I love West Side Story very much. I, it's one of the things I've done that I'm proudest of. Um, but it was so hard, and I and I really do miss working in theater. And you know, da, 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 da. Um, and I am working on a couple of things at play and and two mini series that I don't think Stephen's going to direct. Um, but Maybe it's, I, I, you know, at the risk of sounding like Clifford Odets, you know, I'm going to get back to the theater someday. Um, <laughs> but I've, I've spent 19 years. I mean, I've done some work in the theater since starting to work with Stephen, but I've spent 19 years working with him. And uh, I've made more movies with him than any other writer that he's ever worked with. And it's actually a pretty unusual thing. I mean, there are very few writer-director combinations. I mean, are there any? that have done this, you know, have made movie after movie. And I'm really proud of the four movies that we've made. I think they're, I mean, they're films that I'm, you know, he's made things without me since I met him, like Ready Player, which I just adore and I think is wildly underappreciated by the critical establishment. Um, as, you know, but I don't know. I mean, I feel like we have some kind of weird chemistry and I feel like he's, I think I've really contributed to his work, but I also feel like he's really contributed to mine. I mean, I, you know, um, uh, there are things that you can't do in film that you can only do in theater and of course, vice versa. Um, and I, the things that you can do in theater, I really miss, but, uh, I'm already working on the next movie. With you. Oh, really? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I can't even say what it is. Rachel Maddow uh, has a podcast that just came out uh, called Ultra, which tells the story of a, a sedition um, trial in the United States during right before and during World War II that so terrifyingly mirrors the uh, events of January 6th and the whole uh, threat to democracy that is uh, 
you know, now in Brazil or, you know, uh, spreading all around the world. And, you know, you know, the sort of threatened uh, new age of autarchs of, of, of fascism and, and autocracy. And, and Stephen bought the rights to the podcast and I listened to it and I was completely blown away. And so uh, he said, you want to do this? And I just sort of feel like, you know, there's a great story about W.H. Auden uh, that uh, um, I don't know if it was the Church of England. Some, I guess it was the Church of England. Some archbishop or something came to him and said, we've decided to modernize the King James Bible and uh, we want you to lead the effort. And Auden supposedly said, in response, why spit on your luck? <laughs> You got it right so much the first time. Leave it, and I kind of feel that way. I mean, uh, it's it's weird, you know. I mean, the the penulti- penultimate line in the first half of Angels in America is very Steven Spielberg, and I wrote that before I ever imagined that I would meet him or anything. And uh, I think people used to assume that it was satirical. Uh, it was never intended to be satirical. It was sort of always admiring because I think. I'm a medieval studies major at college, and I believe that Close Encounters is uh, millenarian art. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I was sort of anticipating this in a way, but it's still very weird to me that I'm a friend of Steven Spielberg's and I sort of become one of his, you know, go-to screenwriters. And I feel, and it's a real collaboration. If it wasn't that, I wouldn't be able to do this, but I really feel respected and listened to and uh and reflected in you know they're his films but i feel that i'm you know my my work and and what i want to say is is in them as well and i'm hugely proud of them so i don't want to turn my back on that just because you know people now say oh you're a screenwriter and I say, no i'm a playwright god damn it um, you know i'm not dead yet so we'll see what happens <laughs> Well, I can't wait for all these projects. Um, Tony, I've kept you. You've been incredibly generous with your time. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show today. A real pleasure. Lovely talking to you. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.